One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Solid Talk. Hot Talk Radio. Kevin O'Sullivan. Hear the world differently. Healthy debate. Talk fast. Talk fast. Talk radio. Full contact, common sense conversation. Kevin O'Sullivan. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome one and all to the dependent vassal stage of Kevin O'Sullivan. I'm standing in for the great Mike Brown today and all week. A busy three hours lie ahead. So here's what's coming up. A quarter of a century ago, dynamic President Bill Clinton used his charm, diplomacy and considerable political skills to help forge the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. A peace deal that brought an end to the troubles, but today is under great strain. With the atmosphere tense and the security risk rated by police as severe, a very different American president arrives in Belfast, ancient, doddery and brimming with prejudice against the English. Joe Biden revels in his Irish ancestry, loves to read to friends his mother's anti-English poems and did his level best to block a deal to extradite IRA terrorists from the state. And he turned down an invitation to the king's coronation. So, with the standoff at Stormont continuing in all its lack of glory, don't expect Sleepy Joe to sprinkle the Clinton-style magic and bring all the sides together. Baroness Kate Hoey joins me in a few moments with her take on the significance of this presidential visit. And I'll go live to Northern Ireland where talk radio political editor Peter Carbwell is covering this major event. In other news, the four-day junior doctor's strike is underway as the militant medics walk out demanding a 35% pay rise that, of course, they have no chance of getting. With Health Secretary Steve Barclay repeating his familiar refrain, there's no money. How long will we have to wait until, just as he did with the nurses and the ambulance drivers, he finds some? And how long will we have to wait until the doctor's left-wing union, pompously called the British Medical Association, accepts that they're going to have to settle on something realistic while we wait 
patients will die. 03444991000. Also, if you were tuned to Talk TV yesterday, you might have heard me desperately trying to find out what the locals think about the imminent arrival in their little port of a massive barge to house more than 500 young male migrants. Sadly, the councillor representing a ward in the sleepy Dorset seaside town of Portland didn't seem to know. Today I'll talk to someone who does, the mayor. Is the barge a good idea? Let me know what you think. 0344 499 1000. Plus, while the police go soft on eco-nut protesters, but throw the book at a pub landlady who collects gollywog dolls, a security guard has shown the woke cops exactly how to deal with disruptive dorks from Just Stop Oil. Still with bad behaviour, I'll ask why more and more theatre goers seem to be turning into football hooligans. And I'm sorry to say, we're going to have to ask difficult questions about the Dalai Lama. What the hell was this holy man thinking? Asking a little boy to suck his tongue. Is this what a revered spiritual leader should be doing? 0344 499 1000. Meanwhile, campaigners are calling for a total ban of mobile phones for the under-16s amid rising fears that the wild west of new technology is having a corrosive effect on generations of kids. And what on earth is the utterly insane workers' protection bill all about? And why are Tory MPs backing it? I'll tell you, because they're not really Tories. Uh, find out later. Not forgetting the first lady of the West Coast, San Diego's very own LaDonna Harvey, with her take on another stormy week for Donald Trump. All that and so much more, so don't go anywhere. Stick with me right here, right now, at the home of free speech and common sense talk TV. Let's spend Tuesday morning together. Uh, now, uh, a little later, we'll be uh, talking about the junior doctor strike, which started early this morning and will go on for the next four days. We'll be talking to uh, people from both sides of that argument, those who oppose this industrial action and those who are in the midst of it. Also, uh, we'll go live to Northern Ireland, uh, where Talk Radio's political editor, Peter Carbwell, uh, is there covering the uh, major political event of the visit of President Joe Biden. And uh, I suspect that's what we'll be talking about right now as I go over to my first guest, uh, Baroness Hoey of Liar Hill and Rathlin, uh, Kate Hoey. Uh, good morning, Kate. Good morning, Kevin. Uh, first of all, uh, the president uh, arriving here today or in Belfast today, it's a very different picture to 25 years ago when Bill Clinton took such a major part in the Good Friday Agreement, uh, a president, wherever you lie politically, you could not deny, deny that man's charm, his considerable political skills, his diplomacy and his commitment in a non-partisan way to bringing peace uh, to your troubled country. Uh, and it worked. 25 years later, we have Joe Biden arriving, a man who makes no secret of his antipathy towards the English. His mother was crazily anti-English and apparently Joe's favourite uh, hobby, his favourite pastime, is to invite his friends around for dinner and he reads his mum's anti-English poems. He's not going to the King's coronation. Uh, his uh, code name uh, among American uh, civil uh, uh, secret servicemen is Celtic. Uh, and this was the guy who did so much to block an extradition deal when we were trying to extradite IRA, IRA terrorists who'd escaped to America. So uh, this guy, 
uh, is not going to bring pre peace to the region, is he? Well, having a, a visit of a president obviously is a, a big thing for any country, but you know, for a small country like Northern Ireland, any visit by a president is clearly going to disrupt things. And uh, we've seen that already. I mean, already a number of streets are closed. He's not flying in until tonight. A number of streets are closed. Um, there's a sort of anticipation. But the reality is, of course, that um, the Americans did do some very useful work way back 25 years ago, mainly by George Mitchell, who was the envoy yeah. and who was, did a really good amount of work. And President Clinton, of course, uh, you know, President had a had a really sort of interesting attitude to it. Or Biden is very, very different, as you've said. And um, he is only going to be in Northern Ireland a very short time and then spending the rest of his four days in the Republic, visiting all his his home, his home places and trying to see where his great, great, great grandfather came from. Um, now, of course, we want to mark 25 years because without a doubt, the, the last 25 years have been different from the previous 25 years of 30 years of, of trouble. But of course, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement has not brought about a settlement of of, people, of things politically in Northern Ireland. And I think Biden today or tomorrow will try to meet, I think he is going to meet the leaders of the, all the political parties. But I'm afraid his, uh, his attempts to bring, to get Stormont back, if he tries to get involved in that politically, could actually backfire because, as you've said, we all know where his allegiance lies, and it's certainly not with the pro-union community in Northern Ireland. And we saw that time and time again in things that he's done, um, and and the way the things he's actually said. Uh, you know that that very famous little picture of him meeting um, a BBC journalist who said, "I'm yes. from the BBC," and he just stopped immediately and said, "I'm Irish," and stomped yeah. off. Now, you know that is not going to bring about much change in in uh, what's happening and we won't see any change in Stormont in my view we won't see um, the Democratic Unionist Party go back into power sharing until we get the changes in the Windsor framework because the reality is and this is really important that listeners and viewers understand that if 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 Stormont is working then the members have to implement the Windsor framework. They have to actually make sure that the structures are set up. All of the issues to do with it are going to be implemented by those MLAs. And that means that they're, you're asking unionists, pro-union people, to implement the breaking away of their own country from their own country. And, you know, that is not acceptable. And I just do not understand why the Prime Minister, uh, Rishi Sunak, who's also coming over tonight to meet uh, Biden as he lands uh, doesn't understand that you know he 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 keeps going on that this is this is all changed and everything is wonderful the detail of what the european union have said about the windsor framework that's what people need to read yes i mean rishi announced the uh, windsor framework and then ever since has been acting as if it's a done deal and happiness has returned to northern ireland it's uh, nowhere near a done deal uh, so where are we at uh, with the DUP's attitude to the Windsor framework? And I'm wondering uh, if you feel that President Biden at all might be able to help uh, persuade the DUP to accept this arrangement. 
I don't think President Biden will have any influence whatsoever <laughs> on, 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 on the DUP or indeed the wider pro-union community and the grassroots of unionism, which, is, of course, is a crucial, crucial aspect. Um, I mean, they will be polite. I'm sure Sir Jeffrey Donaldson will will meet him as he would expect as a leader of one of the parties. Welcome him to Northern Ireland. Uh, you know, be, be, do all the things that, that leaders of parties have to do, even if they're meeting people sometimes that they're not very... Um, you know, keen on or recognise that that there isn't much uh, mutual uh, agreement about the way forward. Um, he's also going to open a new part of the Ulster University. He'll make a speech there, no doubt telling everybody that we've got to move on, we've got to make progress, the normal things that we hear over and over again. And what, of course, he won't say is um, th- th- that Northern Ireland is very much part of the United Kingdom. And the, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which he's actually here to mark the 25 years, was very much about the people of Northern Ireland staying as part of the United Kingdom until such time as they voted to leave. And that is what the um, European Union has ignored, the Irish government have ignored, and they've gone ahead, and our government has sadly gone along with it, which is actually dividing up, breaking away Northern Ireland so that goods coming in and out are still being checked. The green lane is, is, is a nonsense. It's not a green lane. And uh, everything, really, that um, the Prime Minister has said, now the detail is out, is, is recognised as not being, not being correct. Yeah, historical notes. Uh, apparently, Joe Biden, by the way, has got as many English ancestors as he does Irish. Uh, but as you know, Kate, all... I heard he was from Kent, yes. Yeah, I heard yeah exactly. And all, but uh, strangely, all American presidents have to pretend that they're very Irish. I don't know why that is. Even Barack Obama tried it, if you remember. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you can... You can... The, the actually important thing is, too, if you look into the histories of all the presidents of the United mm. States over the years... Many, many of them uh, and have come from an Ulster Scots background. In other words, a, a, you know, a, a, a Protestant background mm. who were the early move settlers from, from uh, Ireland. And, um, you know, that gets forgotten because the kind of Irish, sort of green Irish um, St. Patrick's Day kind of stuff gets gets the, um, the hype and the publicity. But there's a lot of Americans who actually, you know, when they say they're Irish, they... They are actually from Northern Ireland. Yeah. Well, I'm called Kevin O'Sullivan, so I'm claiming more Irishness <laughs> than Joe Biden. There you go. I've got some other questions to ask you about Northern Ireland, but I also want to uh, uh, broach a few other issues with you uh, when we come back after this break, Kate. Uh, I'm talking to Baroness Kate Hoey. Uh, I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV Live from the Talk Radio studio. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Uh, welcome back. I'm still talking to Baroness Kate Hoey. Uh, Kate, uh, we've seen some uh, incidents uh, in Northern Ireland over recent days. The police are rating the security situation as severe, uh, strangely saying the public have no need to be concerned. If you say the security alert is severe, then I think we ought to be concerned. But that notwithstanding, what I want to ask you is where are we at? You know, the new, the, the good... Uh, Friday agreement was about bringing peace to Northern Ireland. Uh, it did, but it looks as if we're tiptoeing back into uh, what could be seen as a revival of the troubles. You know, we saw these uh, petrol bombs being thrown. Of course, there was that poor guy a month ago who was shot in front of his son. 
what, do you fear that uh, the troubles could be coming back? I don't think we're going to get anything like what we saw before the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, but there's no doubt about it that the dissident Republicans uh, are, get, are, are seeming to want to show that they still exist. Now, I think it is important to point out how small number they are and how they don't actually have that huge community support that perhaps um, the IRA had at, at certain stages. But there's no doubt about it that they will use any opportunity to... Uh, get publicity. Now, of course, this Easter weekend also marked the anniversary of the Easter rising in, in, in Dublin. So there's always a very, uh, there's always some out, outbursts of, of, um, of violence on the streets. And, and what happened in London Derry Derry over the weekend, you know, wasn't really genuinely any different from what had happened at various points over the past number of years. But of course, it doesn't get the publicity, but the killing, obviously, the um, shooting, and the uh, of of the police sergeant, detective sergeant, was something that really began to worry. I think the security services, and particularly if you're in the police force, the you know, families of the police now are having to be much more careful. Um, but you know, there is a, there is an uncertainty around Northern Ireland at the moment. In in some ways, it's it's looking back. It's so different from what it was. 25 years ago. But at the same time, there's a lot of communities, both in the Catholic communities and in the Protestant communities, who don't feel, particularly young people, that they don't feel they have benefited economically from um, the uh, Belfast Good Friday Agreement. You know, they've still yeah. very, very large areas of deprivation, uh, shortage of housing. And Stormont itself has not actually, and I think we have to face up to it, that Stormont has not been particularly successful the kind of mandatory coalition that has to be there because of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement uh, has not led to good government. And I think that it's important that um, the Prime Minister and, and the Secretary of State use this opportunity when Stormont isn't sitting and that they have a direct role, that rather than calling it direct rule, we actually call it good government. And, you know, that actually they they do some of the, make some of the changes that would mean that if Stormont goes back, it is likely to be more successful in financially. They haven't run a very good show. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, the problem now is that um, the budget is going to have to be set by the, yeah. the government ministers. Um, and a lot of people are horrified by that. But I'm, I'm actually not so horrified because I do think that um, the way Stormont has worked has not been as good as it should have been. Absolutely. And therefore that has led to people disillusioned. So you're not finding genuinely, you're not finding people out on the streets calling, demanding for Stormont to be brought back. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you're right about uh, Stormont possibly not uh, providing good government, but what Northern Ireland needs right now is a government, so it would be nice if uh, they reconvened. Uh, a couple of uh, other issues uh, we could quickly go through, if you don't mind, Kate. Uh, let me ask, what do you think about... Uh, there's a story on the front page of the Daily Mail but which highlights the ongoing migrant crisis. Uh, 19 terror suspects are among the channel arrivals. Uh, among those who have arrived here, the many thousands on small boats coming across the Channel. Uh, the migrant crisis continues apace. We have what I think are kind of cosmetic 
publicity stunts going on, you know, the, the barge going to Portland in Dorset, the uh, commandeering of RAF air bases. All these new stunts are only going to house a few hundreds. Meanwhile, we have 60,000 or so terrorists in hotels all over the country. Um, Rishi says he's going to stop the boats. Uh, hundreds came across last week. He's not stopping the boats. This problem, this crisis, uh, not only continues apace, I think it's escalating. Yes, and it, the sad thing is that, of course, some people warned that this is what would happen, that there's no doubt about it, that some of the people coming in would be security risks. And clearly now... Uh, we're finding that out. And of course, that's that's a very small number, but that could easily grow. And it's ironic about the barge. I mean, the number of people who came over just at the weekend illegally came into the country would fill that barge already. Yes, so right. you know, it's, a, it's a complete, um, you know, it, it, it sounds great, but actually it's, it does, it's meaningless. And I, I'm very clear on this, and I know that you get accused of being, you know, harsh and racist and all sorts of things. I mean, I, ironically, when you see so many people coming from Albania, you, you know, you can't actually, racism is, is, is a very strange word to be used. But I, I actually think that you have to have a situation where literally the people who are leaving and getting on those boats in France know that if they come to the United Kingdom, they are immediately treated as illegal, they will not, they will get the most basic of support and that they will be deported as quickly as possible. And, and what they all know is that at the moment they're coming over, they're being very well received. I visited where they were being received uh, over a year ago and I was horrified then in a way at just how um, how much they were given instantly, you know, brand new clothes, new mobile phone, got medical checks when people were having to wait for ages to get medical checks, got their teeth looked at, all of these things, you know. Were, and I, I just thought you could see that, that, you know, many of them were obviously there really wanting to have an economic better life. And you can understand that. But our own country, people who've lived here all their lives, they are now having to pay for that. And that is just not acceptable. And I don't know what France is doing with all the money that we're giving. <laughs> it's a good question. Good question. I mean, extraordinary. Half a billion pounds. I think at the very least, uh, both Rishi Sunak and Emmanuel Macron owed us some sort of publicity picture of the remarkable difference in the northern French beaches. But uh, we've seen nothing since we handed them half a billion quid. And I totally agree with you. We need a proper deterrent to show these migrants that when you get here, you can't stay. Uh, last question, Kate, if you don't mind. Uh, as a former uh, long-standing very influential Labour MP. What do you think about uh, Labour's campaign posters branding uh, Rishi Sunak as soft on paedophiles and soft on gun crime? Uh, for a kickoff, I see no evidence that Rishi Sunak doesn't want to imprison people who sexually assault children. Uh, but that notwithstanding, Keir Starmer mm. is standing by these very, very hard line posters, which many Labour people have said cross the line. Uh, this is poisonous politics. What's your feeling? Well, I have a great deal of time for David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett. And uh, I think when he came out, and he's a very, very loyal Labour Party supporter. And he came out and talked about it being, you know, gutter politics, I think. We need to be listening to that. I mean, I'm not in the Labour Party now, but I would be horrified. I think personal 
personal criticism of the prime minister. You know, I can criticize the prime minister for all sorts of things, but to actually imply, uh, as those posters did, that he personally was actually trying to stop people, um, you know, child offenders going to uh, to prison it was just ridiculous. And I think it will backfire, but it does mean that, you know, I, I, there's likely to be a tit for tat. And so what, what we've got to try and avoid is politics in our country. Because, I mean, it is nasty sometimes and people can be very, very hurtful. But ultimately, you know, that isn't the way we should really be doing things. And, and ultimately, um, I just hope that the, the Conservatives don't kind of try to come back with, you know, more personal attacks on, on Keir Starmer. Although, you know, I could also find lots of things to say about him. But I think we have to try and separate out the personal, you know, from the, the party and from the overall... Uh, message uh, rather than actually just picking on that um, and I thought particularly the, the fact that Keir Starmer has been involved himself in deciding lengths of sentences it was it was a rather silly um, advert which the more you go into it and think about it the more wrong it was and the more it will backfire. Uh, again, I agree with you, and it was excellent to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time, Kate. That's Baroness Kate Hoey of Lyle Hill and Rathlin. Uh, when we come back, the doctors' strike. We'll be talking to people on both sides of that dispute, uh, striking doctors and uh, a former health official, uh, NHS Trust chair, who does not agree with the strike. So I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live at the Talk Radio studio. Talk Radio and Talk TV. A little later, I mentioned Portland when I was talking to Kate Hoey. Uh, the barge, the migrants' barge, approaches. Uh, it will soon be docking at that tiny little Dorset port. Uh, yesterday, I tried to find out what the locals thought about this impending arrival of 500 young male migrants in their midst. There's only 12,000, 13,000 people live in that town. I spoke to a local councillor. She didn't seem to know. Uh, so today, we've got the mayor. Uh, we're going to find out what the people of Portland really think about this migrant's barge that will be docked in their town. So that's a little later. But for the time being, we need to talk about the doctor's strike. It started earlier this morning, junior doctors. Uh, a four-day strike has been described as the most disruptive strike in NHS history. They're on the picket line and uh, we're going to go straight away to the picket line to talk to, uh, he's from the BMA Junior Committee, uh, Arjan Singh. Uh, good morning, Arjan. Good morning. Uh, how, how's it going? Uh, are you uh, receiving lots of support from the motorists and the public as they go by? And I know what your answer is going to be. It'll be yes. It is, it is. There's, we've had a ton of support so far today at the UCLH picket. Um, the support from the public is incredible. Um, the, the problem that we've got right now is a, is a healthcare crisis. And we're going on strike for our patients, for our profession. And to receive the support is it's really, um, it's really warming. Uh, can I ask you, Arjun, why are you and your colleagues demanding 35% when you know full well you haven't got a hope in hell of getting anything like that? So I think it's important to contextualise this demand into pounds and pence, which is unfortunately the only language the government seems to speak. Our pay restoration demand takes a junior doctor that is on £14 an hour with £100,000 of student debt, who's the first port of call for 200 patients overnight to £19 an hour. 
And I think if you were to ask anyone in the city of London, or anywhere in the country for that matter, is 19 pounds an hour a reasonable wage for a doctor at 7 p.m. on a Friday night, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who disagrees. Well, I, th only I think one you're right, Arjun. is a credible offer. Arjun, I, 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 I supported the, the nurses. I thought they deserved a pay rise. I supported the ambulance drivers. I thought they deserved a pay rise. But like yourselves, they both made demands that they knew they had no hope of getting. You're not getting 35%. You're going to settle of probably in about a month's time when people will have died for about 10%. Now, you've all walked out, uh, obviously for a pay, pay rise. As I say, I respect that and I support you. Uh, you need a pay rise. I agree with that. Uh, but you're also walking out for what you call patient safety. Now, that you've all walked out. There's no patient safety if there are no doctors in the hospital. So you are abrogating patient safety right now, aren't you? So at the moment, there's consultants and specialty doctors that are standing down for juniors. These are the most experienced doctors in the world. They are the world-class physicians. We meet with NHS England four times a day during these strike days. And if they've got any concerns with patient safety or any uh, quality of patient care, there is a mechanism by which they can raise these concerns. The last strike action, they didn't raise any concerns. But we should talk about patient safety on a longer term perspective. Well, no, and let's talk about it on a short term perspective. No, Arjan, let's talk so about it on a short, let's talk about it now. How many patients do you estimate will die because of your strike? What I can tell you Well, you is want that to answer that question. Due to Patients will Sorry? die because of your strike, won't they? At the moment, as we've seen with our yes last set of strikes, no. there was no impact yes or on no. patient safety. Yes or no, Arjan? Will patients die because of your no, strike? They will, won't they? There, there was no impact on patient safety during our first set of strikes. As I said, there was. Of, of England, course there was. Every single, there was every an impact week, on patient there safety. There are 500 patients. Okay. Every single week, there are 500 patients that die in the NHS needlessly There'll be due more to a this week, understaffed doctor's rotor. There'll be more this week. We have week. a workforce crisis. We have a workforce crisis okay. that can only be solved by retaining doctors. And the only way you can retain doctors is by giving them a credible offer. Sure. We've got a mass exodus. We're 9,000 doctors short. 40% yeah. of the ones we've got want to leave. And 500 patients, a Boeing jet full of patients, are dying each week in the NHS due to a lack of doctors. Mm. And we've been writing to the government before the strike action in August saying, please negotiate with us and we yeah. don't have to strike. They didn't respond until February. So that's six months of 500 patients a week dying before they even got around the table. Fair, and then we see speak to us the first time he had no mandates F fair enough Arjan uh, but I would suggest to you that more patients will die when the doctors aren't in the hospital that's only logical but uh, having said that I wish you well uh, and uh, let's talk again that's uh, Dr Arjan Singh BMA junior doctor committee member uh, let's go straight over now to a uh, former NHS trust chair Roy Lilly uh, good morning Roy good morning uh, now, uh, as I said to Arjan just now, I don't know if you were listening, but I do sympathise yeah. with the doctors, just as I sympathise with the nurses and the ambulance drivers. Uh, a lot of health workers deserve pay rises. Uh, but when they go in asking for 35%, it's just ridiculous. They haven't got a chance of getting that. This has been described as the most disruptive strike in NHS history. Uh, and uh, when Arjan and his colleagues say patient safety won't be 
affected by them walking out. Totally disingenuous. People will die because of this strike. Uh, your thoughts? Well, yes, you're right. They will. Uh, there is a, a measure called excess deaths, which uh, it takes a, a rolling average of deaths at a particular time of the year against a particular cohort patient groups. And you can measure how many more deaths you get at a certain period that are not are not what you would expect on average. So what the doctor was, the young doctor was just talking to you about are excess deaths. And there are, he's quite right, there are uh, excess deaths now which are attributable to delays. They went up a lot during the, uh, the difficulties we had during the ambulance uh, unloading problem where ambulances were queuing up outside and the, and the numbers are starting to go through. So there's no question about it that delays in care do cause measurable excess deaths. And we're very likely to see uh, measurable excess deaths now because we've come off the back of a bank holiday. And this is the big issue. This is where the junior doctors have been quite clever. The Easter bank holiday is the big, always the big problem for the NHS. Unless Christmas is on a, uh, overlaps a weekend, Saturday, Sunday, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, you don't get this regular four day problem that you get with Good Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. We all, we know that there's always a big problem after a bank holiday with because primary care hasn't been functioning properly, the, the hospitals aren't fully staffed, and so you get a huge backlog. You get that backlog on top of the backlog that's going to be caused today because, I mean, let's face it, the engine room of the NHS isn't working because the doctors are all standing outside waving placards. <laughs> so we will get excess deaths it will be measurable and for the doctors to try and dance around that i mean it's fair enough they they don't want to go on on national telly and say yeah people are going to die but let me tell you people will die and that is a, a an extraordinary and uh, sinister equation to have to contemplate as i keep saying about these medical strikes i sympathize with them that you know everybody deserves a uh, an inflation matching or better than inflation matching pay rise uh, in the cost of living crisis but when medical frontline workers go on strike people die so we are putting lives on the altar of industrial action. I would suggest to you, Roy, that no strike in the history of the world is worth even one death, and yet these medical strikes cause many. Uh, we have to think about whether we're going to let these people do this if they're going to say we're, we're walking out for four days straight after a bank holiday. Uh, this is using lives, human lives, as a kind of uh, bargaining base, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. And, and, you know, what we're edging to, this conversation is taking us to the point where I think you're going to say, should we pass a law to stop doctors and some other protected professions from striking, which is sort of where the government is edging to now with the latest legislation that's going through Parliament. And, you know, I mean, that's OK. If you're going to interfere with people's absolute right to withdraw their labour if they don't think they're being treated fairly, you have to put something in place to make sure they are treated fairly. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, this is the problem. What's happened is we've had 10 years of flatline funding just be before COVID. We've had 10 years of flatline funding, very little investment in the NHS, not enough training, not enough hospitals, beds, kit, caboodle, the whole thing. The NHS was being run down 
in the in the austerity years, along comes COVID and rips the middle out of it all. And nobody really knew what happened with COVID because the government threw money at it and we couldn't see what was going on and waiting lists went up and all the rest of it. But now it's all starting to settle. The chickens are coming home to roost. And we can see that the pay review bodies, for example, or the doctors and dentists review body in this in this set of circumstances, it makes sense to me as someone who's tried to you know, negotiate industrial relations policy. If you're a minister, you really don't want to be involved in an annual battle with your doctors yeah. and nurses. And it's better left in the hands of the experts and the pay review bodies have been going since 1960. Actually, they've replaced something called the Whitley Council, which was a real chaotic way of doing it. The, but the, the pay review bodies actually started off and they did a very good job. What's happened this time is the pay review bodies recommended, they've yeah. reported and recommended uh, uh, 4.75%. Yeah. The government only wanted to give 3%, but they said, OK, we'll pay the 4.75%. The government thought they were out yeah. of jail. But it was in February. And of course, since January, February, March, we've had a huge acceleration in inflation caused by world yeah. events yeah. beyond everyone's control. And so the relevance of the pay reviews bodies uh, decision well, I, has gone out of the window. Absolutely. I, we, we need a spirit of compromise on both sides and let's hope they can sort yeah. this out very, very quickly. Roy, really good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Uh, Roy Lilly, their former NHS Trust Chair. When we come back, we'll be going to Northern Ireland to talk to Peter Carbwell, Talk Radio's political editor, and we'll be talking about the Dalai Lama, who's been behaving very strangely. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live in the Talk Radio studios. Uh, welcome back. We're talking about the Dalai Lama in just a, a little while. But uh, first, uh, a quick couple of minutes uh, with uh, Talk Radio's political editor, Peter Carwell, who's over there in Northern Ireland for the historic visit of Joe Biden. Uh, hello, Peter. Hello, Gavin. Uh, 25 years ago, the young, dynamic and politically brilliant uh, American president, Bill Clinton, played a central role in forging the Good Friday Agreement, bringing peace to your troubled country. Uh, now, today, we have the visit of an ancient doddery president who doesn't like the English, Joe Biden. Uh, I don't think we can have high expectations, can we? Well, there's a bit of grumbling because there's been a £7 million policing operation here. Much of Belfast is in lockdown because of this visit. And Joe Biden is here for less than 24 hours. He's only got one official engagement. That's at Ulster University, very close to where I'm standing, where he's going to unveil a plaque, essentially, open a new building. And people are wondering whether it's really worth his while. The point is, of course, that Stormont, the political institutions here, are on ice at the moment, as they have been for a lot of the last 25 years. It's been very stop and start, but at the moment, since October, they're, uh, they've been on ice and the Democratic Unionists are saying they're not happy with the Windsor framework that Rishi Sunak negotiated piece of uh, legislation and agreement around Brexit, the tail end of Brexit, one of the final pieces of Brexit. So uh, the institutions aren't up and running here, but Joe Biden is going to try and cajole those parties, get them together, talk to them probably at a central Belfast hotel uh, where he's staying, the Grand Central Hotel, and try to move things forward a bit. But I think it's probably unlikely that it'll have very much influence 
influence. And the main part of his visit over this four-day visit is really in the Republic of Ireland, where he will go to points that uh, are associated with his ancestry. He'll talk to the Taoiseach Leif Radker, the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins as well. So this is just really a short stop in Northern Ireland for 25, uh, tw uh, 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, marking that historic anniversary yesterday as Air Force One touches down here a little bit later on today. Well, Peter, try to control your excitement and we'll come back to you later in the show uh, for a full report from Northern Ireland. Thank you so much for your time. That's uh, Peter Carbwell, Talk Radio's political editor. As I say, we'll go back to him uh, towards the end of the show for a full report on the visit of President Joe Biden. Uh, we are now going to go over to political commentator Alex Phillips. Uh, good morning, Alex. Morning. Uh, first of all, uh, let's watch the Dalai Lama in action. Yeah, so there's the Dalit, the spiritual leader, the Buddhist leader, uh, sort of touching heads with a little boy. This happened in a temple in northern in India in, uh, the, at the end of February. Uh, the boy asked to hug him and then the Dalai Lama said, uh, kiss me. Uh, he kissed him on the cheek. He said, no, 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 kiss me on the lips. And then the Dalai Lama asked uh, the little boy to suck his tongue. Uh, the Dalai Lama, now that this uh, video has emerged, Alex, has uh, issued a sort of grovelling apology and said he, sh he regrets what happened, he shouldn't have done what he did, and he shouldn't have said what he did. Uh, so uh, there's the apology. Uh, but, I mean, I, I, I barely know what to say about this, except for people, men in particular, in extremely influential uh, positions perhaps should not be behaving like this uh, with little boys. What are your, what's your thoughts? Yeah, well, he definitely needed to issue that apology, didn't he? And it's pretty creepy. I think anyone who watches that thinks, oh my gosh, this is sort of toe-curlingly wrong. Um, but what I would say, if you watch the whole clip, is when the translator first goes over, the, the boy in the crowd says, you know, please, Dalai Lama, can I have a hug? And it takes the translator about four or five attempts to even get the Dalai Lama to understand what the boy's asked. It seems to me that, you know, the Dalai Lama's pretty senile nowadays. And so I think we have to take some of this with a, a degree of broad-mindedness. I, I don't think anyone's ever alleged that the Dalai Lama is some sort of paedophile or is inappropriate with children. No I've one's never... saying that. No one is saying that. <laughs> never said that. I've never heard that accusation before. And I think this is a, you know, pretty senile, you know, old spiritual leader having a, a sort of weird senior moment. And it does... <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you know, we're laughing away here, but I mean, you know, I'll, t I'll take I'll take the, uh, you know, the, the kiss on the cheek. But what, you know, senile or not, it seems a bit strange to then say, well, kiss me on the lips. So the kid right. does that. And then and then we, yeah. we 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 rock it over the line. We massively cross the line as the Dalai Lama says, suck my tongue. What yeah. the hell is that about? I mean, I just feel like it's some super old guy who, you know, thinks in his head of sticking out his tongue to a little baby or I don't know. We're not in the Dalai Lama's head. He's apologised for it. It's pretty horrific and it's going to ruin his reputation forever now. And frankly, this plays really well into the hands of people like China who wanted him gone for a long, long time because they see him as pretty subversive against, you know, Chinese secular culture. Um, but, but what I would say is I find that reaction to this understandable, but a bit bizarre in a sense that everybody 
everybody's up in arms screaming about how awful it is that Dalai Lama's done this. And yet when you've got transvestites asking or, you know, pole dancers or whatever, asking little primary school kids to watch them perform adult fetish routines, somehow that's okay and progressive. You know, there can't be one rule for the Dalai Lama and one rule for neoliberal madness hang, happening in our primary schools. I do think that, you know, it, it's probably a good idea to add some cautious nuance. He has apologized. This will have spread internationally around the world. Mm -hmm. And you know, perhaps it's time that the Dalai Lama hung up his robes or something <laughs> and sort of fewer public appearances if he's going to make these sorts of pretty horrific faux pas. Yeah, I think uh, the Dalai Lama is very much a job for life, so uh, he will carry on in this position. Uh, but you're quite right. It's a good point you made there, Alex. Uh, I think the Chinese may well use this against this guy uh, and will destabilise uh, efforts to uh, repel the Chinese monster, if you see what I mean. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, he's a, an incredibly important figure in places like Tibet. Um, I mean, it's it is horrific, and I think anybody watching that video is going to feel at the very least uncomfortable <laughs> watching. But I wonder how many people out there listening agree with me that this could be just a really messed up senior moment. And, you know, perhaps we need to sort of take that into consideration, because, as I said, there's not been any, as far as I'm aware, allegations about the Dalai Lama before. And by and large, he's been regarded internationally as a force for good. I agree with you. And uh, I think we're going to take that line that you've suggested, uh, that he's a very old guy and he's made a bit of a mistake, uh, a senior moment. Uh, well, uh, I, I hesitate to say we're going to let him off because I don't think he should be forgiven for this. Uh, but uh, he, he seems to have realised he better not do it again. Really, really weird incident, though. Alex, great to talk to you. I think I might see you later on on the Jeremy Kyle show. Uh, great to talk to you. That's Alex Phillips, political commentator on the Dalai Lama asking a little boy to suck his tongue. I don't know. <laughs> I never thought I'd say that. Uh, we're going to go to uh, a quick call. Let's go to West Sussex, talk to Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Uh, yeah, hi. Yeah, you want to talk about the junior doctors? I certainly do, yes. Um, I, even this morning when Julia Hartley-Brewer was speaking to, I think she was the co-chair of the, of the BMA, mm. um, and she asked about this £14 an hour. No one can actually get to the bottom of it. Well, if you actually look at a foundation year one doctor, so it's their first year's salary, it's just under 30000 Well, mm. on top of this, they get uplift for unsocial hours, which are about 37%. So actually what you have is a first year doctor who is earning 42000 and not um, just under um, thirty. Yeah, they they they, all, they always do. You know, they, they'll take the the most extreme low paid doctor, and and they'll always pretend that that's what everybody has to put up with. Uh, listen, uh, Sarah, I think you've made a really good point, uh, but I'm going to have to move on because. Uh, we are pushed for time. Uh, perhaps you could call us again. Uh, maybe tomorrow we'll have another chat. Uh, thank you for calling, though. Really good call. Sarah from West Sussex suggesting that actually junior doctors earn a lot more than £14 an hour. I suspect she might be right, and that uh, strike uh, is going to cost lives, as I said earlier. Remember that. People are going to die because of that strike. When we come back, we'll be going to Portland to talk to the mayor about the migrants' barge. Find out what's really going on there. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV.
Welcome back. This is the second hour of my mid-morning spectacular. I'm in for Mike Graham. Uh, I'm Kevin O'Sullivan, and here's what's coming up for the next 60 minutes. Uh, towards the end of the hour, I'll be talking to my friend, uh, broadcaster, social commentator, and former actress, uh, star of Coronation Street, uh, Nicola Thorpe, about what she thinks about these uh, football hooligan-style theatre-goers. It's becoming more and more common that theatre-goers behave like hooligans, standing up, shouting, screaming, singing along with the songs in musicals, really annoying uh, the other people at the theatre. So uh, that never used to happen. Why is it happening now? I'm going to ask that question. Also, uh, we'll find out just exactly how the police should deal with Just Stop Oil protesters. Uh, a uh, security guard has shown the cops the way forward. Uh, also, we're trying to find out uh, again uh, why six coppers, why it took six coppers to raid a pub in Essex where the landlady likes to collect gollywog dolls. Uh, this was the cause of their raid. Six of them. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people don't like gollywog dolls. I understand that. But six coppers, because there's a few in a pub. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. We'll be talking to Harry Miller from Fair Cop about that. And uh, in a little while, we'll be talking about uh, the Scottish National Party SMP, or is it soon RIP for the SMP? Uh, what a mess up there. Uh, what is going on uh, after the raid on the Sturgeon's house, Nicola Sturgeon's house? Uh, we even saw at the weekend uh, a £110,000 motorhome which had been parked at Nicholas Turgeon's mother-in-law's house, being towed away by the police. That's after a load of cops raided the house uh, and set up a forensics test in the Sturgeon's front garden, a forensics tent. Uh, extraordinary goings-on. What's the way forward? Is this the end for the SNP? Uh, but first, uh, let's talk about the migrant barge. We've been talking about that a lot. Uh, it is currently sailing towards the lovely uh, seaside Dorset town of Portland, uh, and uh, I've been trying to find out what the locals feel about this. If I was living in Portland, I'd be concerned. Obviously, you're going to have 500, more than 500 young male migrants on this barge. They're free to come and go. They can go ashore. Uh, they've got nothing to do because they're not allowed to work. There's a bar on the boat. Uh, they can presumably go into pubs in the town. I don't know. Many of them probably be Muslims, probably don't drink. But, uh, you know, their mind boggles as to... Uh, the problems that could arise because of this. Maybe they won't, but uh, I would be concerned if I lived there. Uh, we tried to find out uh, what the locals felt yesterday with not much success. Hopefully today a little bit more success will be achieved uh, and a warm welcome to the Mayor of Portland, Peter Roper. Good morning, Peter. Uh, good morning, Kevin. Uh, yeah, you, you get the gist of what I'm saying. Uh, uh, um, if I was a, a, a Portland resident, at the very least, I'd be concerned about the implications of a large barge to be docked in your lovely town with 500 young men on board who uh, are free to come and go. They're not prisoners. That's quite right. Uh, you know, it, it, could, it could be a recipe for disaster. You must be concerned. Um, absolutely. Um, and there is... Uh, a growing sort of realization on the island of you know of the implications of of having 500 sort of individuals basically inserted onto Portland in a in a short space of time. Um, 
uh, concerns have been expressed to me, particularly from the um, uh, the female side of the Portland population, because there has been um, some unsavoury reports in other areas, you know, uh, where um, the asylum seekers are um, have been put into hotels, um, and uh, it, it, at the moment, you know, the, the, there are rumours that it's just that, and we don't really know what's coming our way. Uh, exactly, and. Uh, uh... As, as I understand it, th- th- this barge, uh, you know, and I'm not trying to be, um, you know, uh, nasty about these people. They're, I mean, I guess they do arrive here. They've got to go somewhere. But if I was living in Portland, I'd say, why us? Uh, because as I understand it, this barge is just being imposed upon you. There's been no consultation. It's just coming to Portland. And you guys and women, as you say, I know a lot of mothers there are very worried about this. Uh, I'm just going to have to put up with it. It's strange that they didn't even talk to you about this. That's that's been one of our sort of big issues. You know, there, there's been no um, consultation, um, not only between um, uh, for Portland Town Council, but also for, uh, for Dorset Council um, and you know, and our um, and neighbours, uh, Weymouth Town Council as well. Um, um, no consultation at all. Still hasn't been anything apart from a, a fact sheet which has been introduced by the Home Office in Portman Port, which has really got no no, no detail about it. Um, we've we have sort of issues about our health services on the islands and also the policing as well. Um, I have to say that sort of Dave Sidwick, our um, Dorset police and crime commissioner has been um, sort of really helpful um, at the moment. He is communicating with us and he is asking for additional resources uh, from the Home Office. Yeah, you're going to need that, aren't you? Because that, that was going to be my next question. The infrastructure of your lovely town, uh, as I understand it, I think there's uh, only 13,000 people live there. So 500 new residents uh, is quite a significant uh, number and uh, they're going to put strain, uh, a real strain on your infrastructure, which I would suggest will struggle to cope. Yeah, I, I, absolutely right. Uh, our single full-time um, police officer will be very quickly overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> You've got one copper. <laughs> I think he's going to need some help, isn't he? <laughs> Oh, well, um, well. So recently, we did have two uh, full-time policemen, but what's been taken away to Weymouth? Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's like it's like I say, um, uh, Dave Sidwick, you know, does seem to be uh, batting for us on this, mm. and you know, um, we hope that um, before uh, the, the, the dock is barged and that the um, the asylum seekers are sort of loaded onto the barge. That you know, that, that there will be um, an action plan, including resources, as not only for the policing but for the health service on the island as well. Now, one of the problems here, and, and by the way, I, I think it's quite right that the uh, migrants should be allowed to come ashore because they're not prisoners, uh, but they are allowed to come ashore. As I understand it, kind of disconcertingly, I would suggest uh, they can come ashore, go and to and from as much as they like. Uh, but uh, they will shut up the uh, ship at uh, 11 p.m. So I'm going to put to you a sort of scenario. You know, 20 lads come up, come ashore, go for a few drinks, you know, have a bit of a good time, uh, wander back to the barge. They get there a bit late. It's 10 past 11, half past 11. The boat's closed. Uh, then what do they do? They wander back into the town. This is worrying, isn't it? Uh, it's... 
It is. Uh, uh, the the fact sheet that we had did say that if anyone's sort of late coming back to, um, to the port, you know, after 11am, there's um, a, a security team or something on the located on the barge, which will telephone them mm-hmm. and ask them where they are and ask them to please come back. Um, so it, it's like I say, you know, uh, the detail behind this is, uh, isn't in place. Um, we do need more consultation locally, uh, from, you know, particularly from the Home Office. And also the port itself. We don't know how the security of the port is going to uh, um, is going to be organised, particularly uh, come June, July, when we've got about fifty cruise ships coming into the uh, into the um, port as well. So you know, still a lot of things to work out, but we just want somebody to talk to us. Well, busy times for you uh, right now, Peter. But uh, one thing, I, if I was you again, I, I, I'd be a bit annoyed about this. I, I think that uh, you're getting this barge imposed on you. Uh, on the altar of a government publicity stunt. What Rishi Sunak and Suella Bravman is trying to say to the people of Britain is, hey, look, uh, we found this new cheap way of accommodating migrants, which, by the way, doesn't seem to fit in with Rishi's plans to stop the boats. It seems to just be an accommodation situation that he's talking about. Uh, But here's what it's going to cost. And perhaps you could confirm one of these details. It's 4,500 pounds a day mooring fee which is great good for portland you know portland port uh it's fifteen thousand pounds a day uh, to charter the boat uh, that's a governmental cost and perhaps you could confirm this uh, as i understand it the government has committed to give the local authority the local council i guess it is uh, three thousand five hundred pounds for every migrant which comes to about one million eight hundred thousand pounds well again nice for the council uh but uh if you add all that up it doesn't seem that cheap does it <laughs> that's right and uh, th- you know th- those are figures that that i that i recognize um th- uh, it would be really nice if um, if there would be a little bit of generosity from portland port in that they could use some of that money to invest in um in the local area mm. um um, particularly as you know, as um, um, the town council will be picking up sort of additional res- and need for additional resources, and also that um, that that apparently you know the the voluntary sector on Portland is also going to be involved in organising activities um, for the uh, for these individuals on on, on the barge. Mm-hmm. Again, no consultation; we don't know anything about that. Um, but the um, the interesting thing is, it really is about this three thousand five hundred pound that comes with each migrant because that will be going to Dorset Council. Ah, and, not you and guys. It, <laughs> and, uh, um, there might be some trickle down effects, but we, we're not going to hold out a breath about it. Okay. Um, yeah, obviously Dorset Council does need to sort of um, provide the statutory um, uh, resources and things. But um, as we're really at the you know the sharp end, you know we will be. Uh, we will be sort of uh, engaging and and interacting with these individuals on the bar on the barge. We're not going to build a barrier with them. Um, you know, we you know uh, we would like to understand them and we'd like them to understand us, so that um, you know we can sort of um, keep a lid on any uh, uh, unsavoury behaviour before it starts. Yeah, I mean, you are going to have to learn to coexist, uh, and uh, you know, as I say. I don't want to be a harbinger of doom. I hope it all works out. But uh, I can't help feeling this might be a recipe uh, for disaster. And you know where I'm coming from there. Tell us a little bit about Portland. Uh, It's basically, it's it's technically a kind of island, isn't it? And isn't it at the end of that uh, incredible Chesil Beach? Am I right? Uh, Yes, that's right. Tell us about Portland. 
Yeah, that, that, that's it, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a, a fabulous um, place to live. Um, uh, there's only one road on, one road off. We're at the end of the, uh, the Chesil Beach. Um, there's, uh, um, th- there's an awful lot of um, biodiversity, um, environmental um, uh, elements to Portland. Um, there's, uh, there's heritage as well. We, have, um, we actually already have two prisons. Um, and um and of course the famous portland bill uh lighthouse but wherever you look on portland there you know uh, you you can you can see the sea you're surrounded by the sea absolutely beautiful place and um if the um if if these uh, any of these sound seekers want to come off the barge there's an awful lot to to see um on portland absolutely well i I hope they like it and i hope they uh behave very well and they enjoy your lovely town but as i say i can understand why you're concerned and i think you deserve a lot more consultation Uh, uh, so peter it was excellent to talk to you and i hope we can talk again thank you very much for your time uh peter roper there mayor of portland uh with some with some good common sense answers uh, that i didn't get yesterday so the people of portland are of course concerned worried Uh, that 500 young migrant males will soon be in their midst on this barge. Uh, What do you think? Is this a good idea? Do you feel sorry for the people of Portland? I do. Uh, As I say, nothing against the migrants in particular, but I, I suspect... There will be, uh, in the words of the song, there may be trouble ahead. Uh, We're going to take a quick call, I think. We're going to go to uh, Jan in Perthshire. Hello, Jan. Hi, Kevin. Uh, Yeah, hi. Uh, You want to talk about about, uh, the... the... The Migrant crisis. Yes, go on. Well, we just keep watching the government making the same policy errors. They're trying to persuade people that it's not a good idea to come here when surely the whole thing could be solved by following Rishi's slogan on his podium, stop the boat. Well, yes, exactly right. I mean, a barge barge full of migrants doesn't stop the boats. It's just somewhere to put the migrants, isn't it? (laughs) Correct. Rishi should ask Macron to give a lump of the money we gave him to Impact and ask as Impact to ask Europol to form a task force mm-hmm. to stop the boats reaching the beaches. Yeah, well, the thing is, Jan, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we keep desperately trying to get Macron and his gang to do something about these uh, migrant dinghies and small boats that keep leaving the northern beaches of France are heading for Britain, of course. We keep trying to get them to stop them. Uh, Only about two or three weeks ago, uh, we gave Macron £500 million, half a billion quid, uh, to uh, properly patrol his beaches. Nothing seems to be happening. Hundreds came across last week. So trying to persuade the French to get to do anything seems to be a thankless task. But I'm with you all the way, Jan, and thank you very much for an excellent call. Uh, Jan in Perthshire there. When we come back, the SNP, the Scottish National Party, is it RIP for the SNP? Now, uh, we are coming next to Harry Miller. He's uh, from the Fair Cop organisation. I'm going to ask him uh, why the soft touch doesn't work with eco-warriors, and we're going to see how you really should treat them uh so uh that next um uh, we're going to go straight over to harry now uh, harry oh, hi harry hello kevin how are we doing uh, i'm good uh now uh before we join uh, before we start our conversation harry let's have a look at uh, w- what i would suggest 
is the right way to deal with just stop oil protesters. Take it away. Okay, so what we're seeing here, this is a security guard, I think in Birmingham. It's an exhibition of Dippy the dinosaur. And these dorks from Just Stop Oil turned up to try to disrupt it. Look at this guy. <laughs> See, that's how to do it. Uh, and I, there's no sound on this. I was listening to it. He's screaming at her. You can't do this. You cannot disrupt this uh, display. Do you understand? Uh, now, that why my question to you, Harry, uh, is, uh, you know, why don't the police treat uh, Just Stop Oil demonstrators like this? Well, it's because they believe in the cause of Just Stop Oil. The police, <laughs> as, the, the, the police as we know, uh, have, have been bought ideologically by Black Lives Matter, uh, Just Stop Oil, by the trans rights movement and that that explains why they are so reluctant um to go in and arrest uh, people who are fighting for the causes that they believe in now this is absolutely fantastic i would make i would make both of these security guards chief constables somewhere because then they can pass down the correct way of dealing with criminal behavior to the rest of the force because this is what this was these people had gone tooled up to dip in the dinosaur in order to spray paint Dippy the Dinosaur, in order to prevent some so-called future genocide being perpetrated upon us uh, by Western governments. Now, the short word for that is this is criminal damage. And we have, absolute, we have an absolute right as citizens to prevent people in the process of committing criminal damage. It's just a shame that our police force don't think that they do. Yeah. You, now, what... this, is, this is going to be a lesson that these protesters are not going to forget. These are overprivileged, underchallenged idiots. And they've gotten away with it this long because our police do not use the powers that they have. Yeah. These, these officers, these, not, they weren't officers, these security guards did use the powers that they have. And bravo to them. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I'd like to see the coppers doing this, but you're right. Yeah, basically, uh, if you, I remember back in the COVID uh, period, you know, the lockdowns and all that, and the anti-vaxxers used to demonstrate a lot, you should have seen the coppers with them down on them like a ton of bricks. Uh, but if it's an eco-warrior, if they're blocking the M25 uh, to save the planet, oh, the police stand back and let them get on with it. I mean, this sort of political favouritism on the part of the police is a national scandal, isn't it? It's absolutely national scandal. I mean, the, the, the other one, of course, that they are absolutely enthralled to is, is Islam. As we saw in West Yorkshire just the other week, um, a chief inspector sitting there as a bunch of crazed... Um, jihadist-type Muslim lunatics from the local mosque uh, demanded that a child be expelled from school. Um, well, for, for, well, for knocking we, we the Quran a, off a desk or something. For, yeah, but for dropping, for dropping <laughs> the Quran, his own Quran. This is absolutely ridiculous. And, of course, the more that the police do this without being challenged, the more they continue to do it. That's why fair cop will continue to be in their faces at every possible opportunity. Because this country does not have a Stasi, a Cheka or, or a Gestapo. And under our watch, we're not going to have one, Kevin. Uh, and here's another one for Fair Cop. Uh, the uh, pub in Essex, uh, I think it's called the White Heart, uh, was raided a few days ago uh, because the landlady there uh, has a collection of gollywog dolls. Uh, a lot of people don't like gollywog dolls. I understand that, that, you know, 
I wouldn't keep them myself, uh, but uh, it would seem to me if this woman likes them, she can have them in her pub. Uh, but someone went in, uh, was offended, uh, and therefore called the police, and uh, they raided that pub because, of course, the landlady and her husband are now uh, suspects in a hate crime, uh, and uh, a racial hate crime. And uh, it took six police officers to raid this pub. Six police officers. Yeah, well, Come course, on, that, Harry. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that, that, that's one less police officer than Hampshire police sent out to arrest me last summer um, over the posting of a trans flag, of course. Um, now, they talk about the hate, the hate crime. They were preventing hate crime. What hate crime? Where was the crime? Did the gollywogs commit a crime? Were the, were the gollywogs the proceeds of a crime? Did the gollywogs inspire a crime? I think not. Somebody was offended by the presence of gollywogs in a pub and they chose to use the anonymous online portal called True Vision in order to cause trouble for that landlord and landlady. And the police, of course, encourage people to do this. The police actively encourage people to anonymously report other people for things that they don't like, for things that they are offended by. This is not the kind of country we want to live in. This, is, this has all the hallmarks of East Germany or Maoist China. It's not the sort of place that we want to live in. So you may argue correctly that gollywogs are unseemly, tasteless, what have you. But the question is this, is it a police matter? And the answer to that is a resounding no. Well, I think I might have told you before, my view on hate crimes uh, is I hate them and I don't think they should exist. They're an attack on freedom. They're an attack on freedom of speech. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, they do exist. And uh, if a member of the public reports a suspected crime, it is the police's job uh, to investigate. So uh, I don't necessarily decry the Essex police uh, for looking into this. They kind of have a duty to do it. Uh, no. So one copper, maybe. Uh, why Six. Why six? Well, 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 it's not about the numbers, though, Kevin. Where was the crime? Where is the? What possible crime is there of having a gollywog on a shelf? It's in a the hate court? crime, how, how Harry. Could there? <laughs> it's a hate crime. The worst crime. Well, there's no such thing as a, there's no such thing as a hate crime, Kevin. Absence of a crime. For it to be a hate crime, you have to have a genuine, straightforward mm. crime, and then. Once the person has been found guilty of that crime, then the judge may take into account any hate element in the uplift of sentence. But having gollywogs in your pub on a shelf is not a crime. There is no crime. Therefore, it cannot be a hate crime. Yeah, and, uh, but why uh, six officers? Uh, I think they took away the offending gollywogs. Uh, uh, why six? I mean, are these are these coppers cowards or something? Do they think the landlady is going to hit them over the head with one of her gollywogs? I mean, what's wrong with them? Well, I'm, I'm assuming they only thought that the gollywogs were going to arrest, uh, resist arrest, Kevin. That's the only way I can possibly think about it. But of course, they do this as they show. They do this because this is this is theatre. This is the theatre of the absurd, where the police go in and make a great big pantomime about what they consider to be ideologically correct. That's how we ended up with a 14-foot billboard being pulled around uh, the Asda car park in the Wirral by the police, saying being offensive is an offence. Which of it course, isn't. Being offensive is not an offence. <laughs> yes, it's exactly. It's not an offence. 
It's why the police came after me for retweeting a limerick, somebody else's limerick. <laughs> I remember. It's, it's, it's because they enjoyed the theatre. And they enjoyed the theatre because it's so much easier than going after proper criminals, Kevin, because that's difficult. Listen, these gollywogs were not the Essex boys, were they? No, they, uh, I see, they, I see what you mean. Actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, Harry, uh, you know, naturally I'm with you all the way, as always. It's good to talk to you again, mate. That's uh, Harry Miller from Fair Cop, uh, former police officer as well. Uh, we're going to go uh, to the phones now, take a quick call from Anne in Glasgow, wants to talk about the migrants. Hi, Anne. Hi there. <clears throat> what I would like to know is why can't we get our warships out onto the water and stop the illegal immigrants from coming in. It's, we'll let them onto our shores, then we have to keep them. It's been suggested, it's been suggested, Anne, uh, that we do employ the Navy to stop the boats coming across. Uh, Rishi Sunak, our dear leader, the Prime Minister, his big slogan is stop the boats. It doesn't seem to be stopping them at all. Last it's week, about 500 came over. I would, I would stop them, I would tell them, you turn round about, get back to wherever you want to go to, but you're not getting into Britain. We're full up. Are you are you available to become uh, the Home Secretary by any chance, Anne? Because I think we need you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. I can't. I, I can't understand why they just keep coming and we do nothing to stop them. They are our only. That's right. Yeah. Especially in this day and age. I mean, look. You were on earlier to to the young doctors. Mm. If we didn't need to spend as much money on in, illegal immigrants, mm -hmm. and let's face it, most of them are economic migrants. If we didn't need to spend money on them. We could afford to put more money, for example, into the health service. You see, you see what I mean? Again, uh, you should be a minister uh, of this uh, nation, Anne, and I couldn't agree with you more. Really good call. Thank you very much. Anne in Glasgow. Uh, let's quickly go to Milton Keynes and talk to Barry, who also wants to talk about the migrants. Hi, Barry. Hi, Kevin. How are you going? I'm nice all right. Well, you. Thank you. What would you like to say? Right, just a couple of things. One, um, with the boat, what they can do with that boat when they bring it over here, they can tow it over, load it up, and then tow it over to Rwanda. Well, no, my idea was, right, the, 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 it was a facetious idea, just in case that nobody has a sense of humour. Uh, some, oh. A lot of people don't. My idea was we got the migrants onto the barge, uh, they're in there the first night, and then around about three in the morning, uh, we sail the barge to Calais, and they wake up and they go, where's Portland? Uh, it's back in Britain, you're back in France. Uh, but I don't think they're going to do that. <laughs> but, well, that was that was part of the other part that I was saying, which was basically either take it, tow it to Rwanda, or leave it in the port of Calais and leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing that you were saying with the French, yeah. instead of us giving them all the money, why don't we actually start forcing with fishing rights? Take away the fishing rights. Uh, well, well, we certainly, we, we certainly, I, I would a bit of hardball with the French would come in handy, I think, because giving them half a billion quid. By the way, that's not the first time we've given them a load of money to patrol their own beaches, but giving them half a billion quid to stop the migrants. 
Uh, fine if it works, but it hasn't worked. Last week, I think it was Wednesday alone, 400 came across. So what are the French doing with our half a billion quid? The idea was they're supposed to patrol their beaches a lot more. They're supposed to actually stop the migrants getting onto the channel. Uh, but instead, it just seems like they've taken our half a billion quid and stuck it in a bank. They've done that so much. And the thing is, when you've got Macron, Biggie Lefty himself, Nothing will change. They're just laughing at us. And the thing is, I, I think they are so, so, so stupid to give out that sort of money when that money's more, more needed here in this country. And it, it's like, totally right. Absolutely. Who, who's leading this place? Who's leading this lot? I, know, d- I don't know, Barry. Uh, I think we're in, we're trapped in the madhouse at the moment. Uh, but really good call. Thank you for ringing, Barry in Milton Keynes. When we come back, I'll be talking to a uh, former actress, broadcaster colleague of mine, Nicola Thorpe, about uh, badly behaved theatre audiences. They, they are beginning to behave like football hooligans. We'll show you some video of extraordinary scenes in a Manchester theatre over the weekend. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. Final hour of my mid-morning spectacular. I guess this is the afternoon bit. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan standing in for Mike Graham towards the end of this hour. Uh, we're doing a bit of globe trotting this uh, 60 minutes. Uh, towards the end of the hour, we're going back to Northern Ireland to talk to Peter Carbwell. Uh, just before that, we're going to uh, the United States of America. We're going to go to the West Coast and talk to LaDonna Harvey, the First Lady of San Diego. Uh, find out all about that stormy week uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, And in a little while, uh, we'll be talking about an extraordinary campaign to try to ban phones, uh, mobile phones, for all under 16-year-olds. I mean, I I sort of can understand what the impulse for this is, but it's a bit of good luck with that, isn't it? Uh, But it's a very serious campaign because uh, people say that the wild west of new technology is basically corrupting our kids. And, you know, you can't deny they've got a point. So that's an interesting story we'll be dealing with in just a little while. Uh, But first, I want to talk about something. As I say, this is uh, me being an impartial journalist, something that I think is absolutely barking mad, totally insane. It's called the Worker Protection Bill. Uh, Essentially, it, it means that if you say you're a barmaid or a barman, you work in a pub and some drunk comes up to you and insults you, offends you, says something nasty, you then sue your boss. And say so you're the landlord and say, it's your fault, you know, you owe me money, you know, it's compensation. Even though the landlord wasn't there, couldn't do anything about that. And of course, the implications of that in all areas of industry are immense immense. It's going to cause so many problems. It should not be passing through Parliament, and yet it is. It's the brainchild of a couple of Lib Dems. Big surprise. Uh, But the Tories seem to have been asleep at the wheel, and the Workers' Protection Bill seems to be passing through Parliament. Extraordinary. Well, one man who has spotted the problems here, the immense problems, uh, is the head of cultural affairs at the E-I-E-A, the Institute of Economic Affairs, Mark Glendening, who joins me in the studio. Thanks for coming in, Mark. Thank you for having me. Uh, Yes, mad, isn't it, (laughs) this uh, Workers' Protection Bill? Well, mad and sinister. I mean, it's mad in the sense that people who are completely innocent, that is to say, employers who might not even be on the premises at the the time, somebody overhears an offensive comment or is possibly... Uh, sexually, say, assaulted by you know a drunken 
patron uh, in the establishment, that the employer could then be sued. So a completely innocent party, which everybody would recognise as innocent, could then be held legally liable, rather than the third party, the person who's actually uh, committed the act. But it's sinister because it is part of the desire on the part of the Lib Dems and the broader new left to establish total state control over what is said, even informally. It's really sinister stuff here, and that, I think, is the real motivation. It's an authoritarian, anti-liberal measure which the Lib Dems are pushing and which, incredibly, this government is going along with. And it's anti-boss, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, for example, here... By the way, I'm just putting my bosses on uh, warning. (laughs) Uh, You know, here, being a talk TV presenter, we get a lot of nasty social media messages, a lot of nasty texts. You could be in for a so, lot of money, So I, I could say to my bosses, oh, no, they really offended me. You owe me money. So if somebody sends me a nasty text or a nasty tweet, what the hell is... That's not my boss's fault. And yet this bill, or the, if it becomes an act, will make it my boss's fault. That's ridiculous. I mean, it's basically suggesting that employers should have the sort of powers of Nostradamus to be able to predict everything that is going to happen on their premises and in their workplaces. So, for example, supposing one of the co-sponsors of this bill, an MP called Vera Hobhouse, was to organise a Lib Dem fundraising event in her house, and one of her guests was to go unexpectedly mad and start biting the other Lib Dems at this event, she in theory, uh, could therefore be held legally responsible for that, even though she had nothing to do with it. There are laws already in place if people commit acts that are illegal Mm. for them to be prosecuted. But it's not the person who owns the property or is the employer who should be prosecuted unless they themselves have committed that act. This is a deeply unconservative. It is the brainchild, as I said earlier, of Baroness Burt in the uh, House of Lords. Uh, she's a Lib Dem, as I say, big surprise. And uh, the Lib Dem MP Vera Hobhouse, uh, they proposed this law. It's one of those uh, bills that should have died at birth, basically, and yet it per- it continues. And uh, seems the Tories have been completely asleep at the wheel letting this pass through. The problem is, I think, that across the piece in British politics, not just on the centre-left, but within the Conservative Party as well, with a few exceptions like Kemi Badenoch, virtually nobody now really believes in traditional liberal values, including freedom of speech. Uh, Most people now are prepared to see people being prosecuted, not for actually carrying out serious, other-regarding, aggressive actions towards other people, but but simply because they have in some way psychologically, emotionally unsettled other people. So what is happening in this country is that the whole country is being turned into a sort of safe space, like you get in universities, where certain subjects and words cannot be used. So the whole country is being infantilised 
we're being treated as if we're not really adults. Mm -hmm. And once you go down that road, then the whole country is turned into a kind of nursery uh, mm -hmm. in which those who have control over that space, in this case, mm -hmm. the state, can intervene to basically suppress any form of communication. Now, that's what the left want. But what is extraordinary is that people on the liberal centre-right, with one or two exceptions, are going along with this. Yes. Uh, um, I mean, is there any chance to stop this? Uh, is it an unstoppable force? Or uh, can we put this, where it, this bill where it belongs uh, in the bin? Well, I mean, of course there is a possibility of stopping it if uh, a majority of Conservative MPs and hopefully also some rationally minded traditional Labour people who are political liberals, even if they're not necessarily economic liberals, come together to stop it. Um, so, of course, there's every possibility of stopping it and it has to be stopped. Otherwise, this country is moving into a very... Uh, dangerous state of affairs, it seems to me. And it would strike me that the problem here would be that uh, the Conservatives, who for so long have been trying to turn themselves into Labour light, never saw a Labour policy they didn't want to copy, uh, that uh, they believe that if they oppose this bill, uh, they will be accused of being illiberal. Uh, and that this bill is liberal, but it's the opposite, isn't it? This bill is deeply illiberal. And by the way, you can imagine uh, that if it goes through, that every pub you ever go to will be adorned with massive great signs saying, don't be nasty to the bar staff, don't swear, don't do this. It will bring about a kind of dystopia. Uh, in pubs and indeed workplaces all over the country. It will have a chilling effect, uh, and so you're absolutely right, uh, because the bill says that employers have to take reasonable steps, which is not defined, so that could mean anything, yeah. to prevent their staff from being offended by what is said to them or what they overhear, or the, the physical actions also that they are subjected to. So what will happen is employers will have to put up signs in pubs and other public venues like football stadiums saying you are not allowed to use these words. You are not allowed to discuss religious uh, or political affairs or whatever it happens to be. I mean we're already beginning to see this kind of dystopian stuff you've referred to on the London Underground. There are endless posters now telling me I mustn't stare at people uh, again, undefined, you know, how many seconds is that? Uh, I mustn't go around touching people. Uh, there are posters from the Mayor of London telling me to be kind. Um, what, do, what does all this mean? It's very sinister. It's a sort of soft focus, proto-fascistic kind of society that is now in the process of being constructed. Uh, and it fuels uh, what to me is a very disconcerting trend uh, and that is the age of the accusation, you know, that uh, to just to be accused of something is to have your life ruined. doesn't have to be proved, just someone says something. So this act, or this bill, will hugely empower those kind of people who like to say, Mark Ben Denning behaved in a very offensive manner to me, and I've reported him to the police. You will then be suspended for your, from your job and your life will be in tatters. That's the problem here, isn't it? Yes, you will get psychologically 
uh, unstable people. You will get opportunists looking to make money off their employers. You will get crazed snowflakes using this law to pursue their employers, as if the, the employers of this country don't have a difficult enough job as it is keeping people in work, particularly because of COVID, uh, because of the energy crisis. So you can imagine they're going to be tied up in all kinds of litigation mm -hmm. um, out of disingenuous, perverse, uh, vexatious legal actions. Um, but in addition to that, it's an extension of what we're already seeing with the police putting people on non-crime hate databases, people like uh, Harry Miller, simply because they've said something political, not criminal, just expressed an opinion. And the police are now putting people on these databases. Uh, and so what we're seeing is exactly what you're describing. Um, people are trying to get, you know, telling on people. It's like turning us again into sort of kids in the schoolyard. I was talking to Harry, Harry Miller was on the show earlier. We were talking about, uh, which I think uh, is relevant to our discussion, the uh, raid by six police officers uh, on an Essex pub in the town of Grays. Uh, it's called the White Hart. The landlady there likes to collect uh, gollywog dolls. Someone went in there uh, and said that was offensive, told the police uh, that this is offensive. Six coppers raided the pub. This is the kind of nonsense that this kind of bill engenders, isn't it? The police are now in this country turning themselves into a sort of watered down of the morality police in Iran. They're giving themselves the right to intervene politically, even when, in fact, no crimes have been committed. And so this is, you know, yet another example of that. Um, if people don't like the sort of uh, things that are on display in this pub or any other public venue, they don't have to go into them. Mm -hmm. uh, in a mature liberal society, people should be free to express themselves in whatever way they wish, even if others find that offensive, because you can't live in a democracy unless people have the right to say things and express opinions and display things uh, which other people may not like. If you don't have that self-denying ordinance of adult respect for mm -hmm. other people to be different from you yeah. and to hold different opinions, then in fact the whole basis of democracy collapses. And this is why I think we're moving now into a really sinister authoritarian phase of, of our history. More. Uh, final question, Mark, uh, on a more general basis. Uh, what do you think could be done to persuade co the Conservative Party, Conservative MPs, Rishi Sunak and the gang, that maybe a spot of traditional conservatism might win them the election, as opposed to trying to be Labour light, trying to uh, pr predict what Labour might do and then trying to do it themselves? I mean, they're not giving us a Tory government, are they? They're not. And they're not giving us, more importantly, a Liberal smaller liberal democratic government. Um, we've seen in Scotland that the vast majority of people do not like this stuff, regardless of what their party political background yes. is. The SNP is now paying a huge price in Scotland uh, because of their attempts to suppress free speech on the transgender yep. Yep. issue. There are millions of voters out there, swing voters, traditional Labour voters, who believe in free speech. And the Conservative Party, it seems to me, just on an opportunistic basis, has uh, the possibility to construct a new kind of political alliance based around 
traditional principles of liberal free speech. Yep, I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, that's fascinating, Mark. Thank you so much for coming in. That's Mark uh, Glenn Denning, uh, Head of Cultural Affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Hope to see you again very soon. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the campaign to ban phones for the under-16s. Uh, good luck with that, uh, but it's an interesting campaign. Find out all about it. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV Live from the Talk Radio Studios. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.